have to pay that. Uh, they were just receiving that money from Fox. Oh, yeah, right. We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street, the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight, as we always do. To those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, it is my pleasure to welcome Ray Negron, the author of Yankee Miracles, Life with the Boss and the Bronx Bombers, a really uh, beautiful book. Thank you. And so, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the clubhouse. Well, it's good to be here today, and uh, first time here, and beautiful array of uh, old stuff all over the place, and I love your... Bay Brute stuff, and I love that Thurman Munson ch chest protector <laughs> that you have up on the wall over here, which my good friend Harris pointed out. And I might have to steal that thing, so you better be on the lookout. That's why we put it so high. I figured. <laughs> it's actually it's a li it's a little league protector, but it's based on his exact uh, yeah, the one he what he yeah, one, that yeah. time yeah, yeah absolutely yeah because what happened was uh, I'm, I have a an, an animated film starring Richard Gere. Chaz Palminteri and Danny Aiello, it comes out in May. And what happened was that when they did the uh, the Thurman Munson part, the chest protector was mustard blue or something. Bluish mustard. Yeah, mustard. The chest protector. Mustard color. Oh, for the animation. The, the person in this in the stands. That's Harris speaking. And uh, but anyway, Harris pointed out that it had to be orange. And so what happened was, you know, they finally went for it when they saw all the research that it was, you know, a factual that it was orange. But you know what? I wanted to bring in a real orange chest protector, and we called Rawlings and everybody, and nobody could even put one together for us. We look in everywhere, in eBay, all that kind of stuff. We even called Mrs. Munson, and she didn't have one. And then we walk in here now, and son of a gun, there it is. <laughs> you can borrow it any time. Thank you. <laughs> the uh, well, actually, I think we don't we don't normally start this way, but I think it's only appropriate. In Ray's book, he has a little timeline, and I would just like to go through this quickly and briefly because uh, we're all going to feel completely inadequate after I do this. But I, I think it'll give you some sense of how fortunate we are to have this person with us tonight and that he wrote this amazing book. And this is just a quick little background for those of you either here or listening to this podcast. You'll get to know who Ray Negron is, at least in some sense. And this starts in 1973. Ray became the Yankees' bat boy. He then was drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates and played for Bradenton in their rookie league. He then became the Yankees' batting practice pitcher then the Yankees video operator, assistant, he was a clubhouse assistant and an assistant to some guy named The Boss. He then became an actor in Blue Skies Again, The Cotton Club with Richard Gere, The Slugger's Wife, various commercials, and he became a sports agent. He then became an advisor for the Tokyo Yamiuri Giants, then general manager of the Port St. Lucie Legends of the Senior Professional Baseball League, then the coordinator coach for children's after-school programs at the Tampa YMCA. Which I got thrown out of. <laughs> we'll get into that. Okay. 
Then he devised rehabilitation programs for two guys named Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. Then a special advisor to the Yankees owner, George Steinbrenner. Then worked with sports psychologist, Dr. Charles Mayer, with the Cleveland Indians. Then he worked with management and sports psychologist, Don Kautstein of the Texas Rangers. Then special advisor to George Steinbrenner, an author of children's books, executive producer of the animated film Henry and Me that Ray just mentioned, and then community advisor for the New York Yankees. So what the hell have you been doing all this time? I don't know what to say about that. It sounds like a lot of stuff, but you know what? In, re in reality, it's really not because, you know, life, you know, we only have a certain amount of time to do things, so my thing was about going for it, you know? And I was blessed because I had a... I had George Steinbrenner always urging me to do things, to try things. I was like Gumby to him, you know what I'm saying? Because he liked to like do certain things and see if I had the nerve, the guts, the will to try things, you know? <clears throat> and like when I went to Cleveland to work with a psychologist, Charlie Marr, awesome guy, because this is a guy who is ironic that I just was talking to him today about a project, but this is a guy who's worked for NASA, training astronauts in dealing with going out into space, worked for the FBI, worked for the CIA, and then, he, and then a, 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 as a fun thing, worked for the Cleveland Indians, Chicago White Sox, Cleveland Browns, Cleveland Cavaliers, worked with a gentleman by the name, I think you know him, might have heard his name by the name of Michael Jordan. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean... This is a guy that I was there, and I'll, I'll never forget, after my first year, I called up the boss, and I said, boss, I'm ready to come back now. And he said, no, you stay there because you have a lot to learn. And he was right, and I ended up staying four years. But during the process of the four years there in Cleveland, every day, like I was staying with a, a good friend of mine, you may have heard of this guy too, by the name of Roberto Alomar. So I would stay at Robbie's house, so the phone, he would call the boss. Then I didn't have a cell phone, so the boss would call Robbie's house. The phone would ring, and Robbie would pick up the phone. Hello? <laughs> and, uh, hi, it's George Steinbrenner. Is Ray Negron there? And then Robbie would look at me funny and says, Ray, you working for them or are you working for, for us? Because he was with Cleveland then. You know, I'd say, just give me the phone. You know, because in, in essence, John Hart, the GM, understood my relationship with the boss and he always knew that even though I was working for Cleveland that I would always be working for the boss because that never ended and anywhere I went he was like always on my tail to find out what am I doing you know well I think a lot of the people here know the story but many don't especially those who may be listening so if you could take us back to June 29th 1973 the day when you happened to meet the boss for the first time and just kind of explain what, what happened. And it's it, in some ways, it was really the start of your life uh, that day. Well, you know what? Uh, like like most kids in that era, you know, here's a good friend right there, Eli, who, who one, one, uh, you know, he he's a guy that I've known for a long time. And, you know, his dream has always been Roberto Clemente. So he, he keeps the name alive, keeps it going. And, you know, uh, 
I've always been proud of what you do. And 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 when I see your sons, especially the the older one, I saw him yesterday for the first time. Uh, I was at his event yesterday signing books, and that kid is you know I mean he's I mean George Steinbrenner would have loved that kid. That's why I kept <laughs> staring at him yesterday because he would have been a favorite of the bosses, you know. And, uh, and 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 I'll, I'll be I'm just I'm gonna just say it. he reminded me of me, you know what I'm saying? Because every time you asked him to do something, he was he was willing. And you know, in 1973, George Steinbrenner catches me. I'm just gonna go right to it because everybody's heard the story, okay? He catches me doing graffiti. I didn't know who he was, you know. He put me in a in a holding cell at the old stadium. Him and this asshole that worked there, you know, was a security guy. Jim Naples? No, no, I like Jim Naples. You know. And then he woke up. This guy was asleep. Imagine? No, I, hey, Jim Naples. Jim Naples was very good to me, but Jim Naples' boss, Pat Kelly. You heard of the name? Oh, okay, good. I'm glad. But uh, anyway, they put me in the holding cell, and I thought I'm going to, to central booking and all that. And within 20 minutes, the guy comes back, and the guy is George. He says, "Give me the kid," and and all of a sudden he, he grabs me and they take me to the Yankee clubhouse, and they all of a sudden they're giving me a uniform, and I'm the bat boy that night for the Yankees, and the beautiful thing of that night, two things, one was there was an outfielder for the Cleveland Indians by the name of Rusty Torres. Remember the name? Okay, and Rusty was came from my neighborhood. Okay, so all of a sudden, when I'm on the field and trying to get ready, all of a sudden, somebody taps me in the back, I turn around, and it's Rusty. And so then Rusty's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing on the field? And I told him what happened. He started laughing, and he started bringing all the players over, and I had to repeat the story like seven times, you know what I'm saying? And, don't know, and as I'm going through this whole process, the great Bobby Mercer is just staring at me. And Bobby says, what, you got a fan club already? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, but it, it, it was just a beautiful moment. And so after the game is about to start, you know, so then Mercer calls me over and he says, where they got you? And I said, I'm down the right field line. He says, oh, take your, take your stool and put it down there and then come right back. But what, just do what I say. Just put it down there and come right back. So I take my stool and I put it down the right field line and I come back to the dugout. So then he says... In about a minute, the music is going to go on. Here come the Yankees. And when the music comes on, we all run out. When we run out, you run with us. And I was like, holy shit. Because I thought that was unbelievable. I'm going to run out with the New York Yankees. Hey, I had just been in a jail cell. And before that, I was doing a criminal act, graffiti. You understand? Especially in that era. And now I'm running on the field. Could you imagine to hear, hear Eddie Layton's like, ding, 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 and we're running out like, you know, it's like, oh my God. And I'm looking into the stands and oh my, you know, it was my legs were like this. I couldn't even, they were so wobbly that that run from the dugout to the right, uh, well, I actually ran right to the outfield. And then, uh, you know, because I had to throw, play catch with Johnny Callison, who was the right fielder that day. But it was like, uh, it, it was so draining. You know, I was like, oh my God. It's amazing. It's amazing. The, 
I think what we'll do now, because uh, I'm sure we're going to have some questions, is I'm just going to uh, throw out some names. You could and say, I'm going to be very blunt. Yes, I can tell, okay. which is great. Okay. That's how we like it in the clubhouse. Okay, good. And you can say one word, a sentence, a story, Don't whatever worry, you want to do. I'll give it to you. I'll give it okay? to you. Okay? This is not center stage. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, first one, uh, Thurman Munson. Wonderful. Makes me cry. Still haven't gotten over it. Um, man's man. A real captain. Okay, real. He didn't want to be a captain, but a real captain. A leader. And, uh, let's, let's move on. It's beautiful. Uh, Mickey Mantle. Good guy. He was a good guy. A lot of problems. Told me to go fuck myself. But that's okay. You and everyone else. You know, I have no problem with that. And you know what? And the kids are going to learn these words, and they're bad words. You know what I'm saying? You know... Like, my kids have heard it from when they were tiny. And I have, I have three sons and a daughter. They've heard everything humanly possible. But you know what? My sons never curse. They never curse because they know it's bad. And I know that your sons know that it's bad. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's not good to, to shelter you because you're going to hear these things growing up. Next. Uh, someone who probably never cursed in his life, uh, Billy Martin. Uh, my father, you know, my one of my baseball fathers, and and nobody loved the Yankees more, not even George. And uh, ne uh, next to me, got fired the most times, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I miss him badly, you know, badly. Coming up on uh, Christmas Day, 1989. Yeah. yeah. Uh, someone who you mentioned briefly, Bobby Mercer. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Can't find a better person. It's really, it's really something because I... I, I you know, in all honesty, I have to say, I people who know me know I'm I'm not a Yankee fan. I'm a Mets fan. But the the, the stories in the book, the emotion that you see Ray, uh, that just the name of somebody and all the memories that come back over time. Uh, when I was reading the book to get ready for tonight, uh, I'm sitting back at my desk back there, and I don't know. Somebody can come walking through the door at any moment. You know, who knows. And I'm figuring, like, I'm not, this is not going to be emotional. The Yankee Miracles, I knew your story a little bit of how it started. And I start reading this chapter on Brett Gardner, and I'm back there crying. I'm just hoping nobody walks through the door at that exact moment. Why, why am I back there crying? Uh, so I don't know if you want to tell the story, or if we want people to go buy the book to read the story, but I, I'll say the Brett Gardner story alone, the Brett Gardner chapter, is... Uh, if that was the only chapter in the book, it would be fantastic. It was beautiful because uh, the little girl, it was a little girl, and she had uh, been waiting for a heart. And, uh, you know, I mean, she, six months is a long time to be in and out of a hospital and hoping. And, and, and the aspect of it is that, you know, you know you're that young and, 
and you're wondering if you're going to live or die. You know, you haven't had a life yet. And, and so she was so sweet. And the aspect of giving Brett Gardner a bracelet, you know, and saying, maybe you'll hit a home run for me tonight. And Gardner not being a home run hitter. And, oh, my God. And, and what happens? He shows up at the ballpark. He said, like he told her, that he would try. He shows up at the ballpark. His name is not in the lineup. So that's strike one. But then what happens during the course of the game? Johnny Damon gets thrown out. Gardner's put in. And so in the sixth inning, he hits a lazy fly, lazy fly ball to right field. And the, and the guy that's in left field is a very fast span. I mean, he can fly. But for whatever the reason, he just didn't get to jump on the ball. And the ball skipped by him all the way back to the wall. And my man goes around the bases, dives head first at home plate, inside the park home run. Like, you know, like he said after, right after the game. Like I ran to him and I said, don't forget that little girl. And he says, does that, count as a, does that count as a home run? That's what he asked. You know what I'm saying? And I said, dude, a home run is a home run, man, you know? And so he went through the whole process of it. Yeah, this and that. I, would, you know, I did it for her. And what happens? Within an hour or so, we get a call that they found a heart for the little girl. Could you imagine? And like two weeks later, she was at the ballpark. It was like two weeks later, right? She was at the ballpark to receive Gardner and... And it was beautiful. And she's still living and going at it, man, fighting like crazy. Because it hasn't been easy for her, you know. But I don't tell it as good as I wrote it, you know, only because I had time to put my total soul into it. And, if you, and you've already had me cry three times. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I cry a lot with baseball, too. And you know, especially the aspect of my friends. Yeah. Because Mercer, Munson, Billy, you know, I love them with a passion, you know. I mean... They were my brothers. You know, I did things with them. I was close to the family. I grew up with his, with the kids. You know, I mean, wh wh wherever I went someplace, Mercer's kids were always with me. Todd, his son, was always there. You know, so, they, you know, they were, they were family. You know, Billy, I, his son, I mean, that's like my little brother. You know, I tell him things about his father that he didn't get to see. You know, and so it's... Uh, it's it's very emotional for me, you know. Next question. Okay, how about catfish hunting? Oh, God, we're on a bus. We just finished getting beat by the Mets, so everybody was like pissed off because we had just taken a verbal beating from the boss. So we got on the bus to go back to Fort Lauderdale. This is '78, I guess. And all of a sudden, everybody always used to be in the same seats. But that day, since we wanted to get out of there so fast, it was extra work. And we don't have staff like they have today. Today, they got like 20 guys working in the clubhouse. Those days, it was three. So I had to bust my butt. And it was at that trip, it was only two of us. And so as soon as it was over, man, I was so dead tired that instead of sitting in the middle of the bus, I went to the back of the bus, and some of the guys let me lay down. In those days, the buses had the whole back seat. So I was just like, I was knocked out. And then all of a sudden, we take off, and all of a sudden, Catfish Hunter screams out, Stop the bus! Stop the effing bus! And the bus is squeaking and stuff, and everybody's screaming. I said, Oh my God, we're in an accident, because I've been knocked out. And I looked up, and Catfish stands up, he goes, We left Rain the Groan. <laughs> <laughs> this guy stopped the bus. 
<laughs> the New York, the world champion New York Yankees for me? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, I was like, you know, I mean, I was always like sensitive, etc. You know, and I mean, I could even swallow because it was like, oh my god, catfish, Cy Young Award winner. He stopped the bus for me. Some. Dumb Puerto Rican kid with an afro <laughs> did that for me. It was like you know, and and you know it was funny because I think it was Cliff Johnson. Remember Cliff Johnson? And and Cliff Johnson goes, I think it was Cliff, and he goes, you don't have to read the bus the book to find out who it was. But I think it was Cliff, and he goes, you stopped the bus for that mother ever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But anyway, that's what happened there. So just a question, just something that you but said. Cat, but Catfish Hunter, that was Catfish, you understand? Country boy, beautiful, good guy, funny, one of the funniest guys ever. You know, and I'll give you a classic example of that. Most players in those days hated day games after night games because on a Friday night in New York, you're still going to go out, you know, especially in those days. You're going to go out. So I'll never forget, Lou Pinella went out, hung out all night. Now we have a day game, so he's walking in. He's like, he's walking in, his, like his shirt is not even buttoned properly. and You know, his shoes are half on. His hair's not combed. And so everybody's staring at him as he's walking in. You know what I'm saying? You can tell he hasn't even brushed his teeth probably, you know? And so, so then Catfish looks at me and says, Hey, Lou. Oh, I can't tell that story. <laughs> I can't. Anyway, Catfish was very funny. He kept the whole team very loose. <laughs> very, you know, very loose. He was, you know, great, awesome. Okay? But a beautiful guy. Beautiful guy. And, and you know what? One of the classiest of Yankees. Never gets credit for that. But he was so classy. He was incredible. He was incredible. Good guy. Now, something that you said in the beginning of that story was that Steinbrenner railed into the team. This was a spring training game. Yeah, spring training. So even a spring training no, game against the Mets, it the didn't Mets. matter. You know, it didn't matter who. You know, lose to anybody else, but not the Mets. You know, you, you know, because he said to Billy, "Why did you take out the starting team so soon?" And and Billy, and I don't, and, and then again, I can't even go into that one because you know the the curse value of it was incredible because they started screaming at each other. And so all of a sudden, as they're screaming, Gabe Paul pushes them into the manager's office. They close the door. And so all of a sudden, me and Goose go like this. <laughs> Just to hear, oh my God, it was hilarious. You know? What were, the, what were they really like together, the two of those guys? I mean, uh, George and... George and Billy. They, it was a love-hate relationship. I mean, hey, let me just say this. George fired him five times, okay, or whatever, and he brought him back. And every time he brought him back, it was because he was hoping that Billy had finally gotten it together. He was an alcoholic, okay, in denial. Denial makes an alcoholic or a drug addict very dangerous to himself. But every time that he came back, Billy would always say, yeah, I got help, I'm all right, I'm ready. It's not going to be the same, but it was always the same. It was always the same. But like, you know, like I would have followed him anywhere, you know, anywhere. And I mean, I would have gone to Oakland with him at that time when he went to Oakland. 
I mean, I was ready to go out there, but uh, like he, you know, he knew. Like Billy would would say to me, as much as I want you to come out here, you're more you're more Yankee than I am. That's what he would always say to me. You know. Uh, two guys that uh, mean a lot to New York baseball, no matter what, because they were, I mean, they were two of my favorite Throw players, and they both played on the Mets. So, uh, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry, awesome people, sick, very sick, and from the standpoint of their disease, one day at a time, fought like crazy not to let the boss down, because they loved him so much. And they knew what he had done for them. Because believe me, before they even put on their Yankee uniform, it was like I, I, I took a whole year off just to deal with the aspect of Gooden before he signed that Yankee contract. And that's how much the boss believed in Gooden and how much he wanted to believe in him because he dug him that much. And Daryl, the same thing, you know, same thing, same thing. And uh, what would they have been? had it not been for the disease of addiction. Okay, I mean, the numbers would have been staggering. Because look at the numbers with everything that they went through. Yeah, I mean, that Gooden as a, as a young guy with the Mets his first couple of years. Nobody would, nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody. I don't care if their name was Cy Young or Christy Mathewson. Nobody was Gooden. Even, even Clemens, no. No, that was that guy was like in outer space. Yeah. Okay. Period. Period. Do you uh, do you stay in touch with the, with either Dwight or Daryl? I, I, I talk to both of them regularly. How are they doing? They one day at a time. They're doing one day at a time. Today they're clean, so they're good. You know, so they're good. And, and with that being said, my good longtime friend Caesar Prespot, a big time Yankee scout is here with us tonight, so I'm happy that he's here. And Caesar, believe it or not, was one of the first guys in the Yankee organization to work with a, with a player with the disease of addiction because he worked very strongly with Pascal Perez, who we just lost a couple of weeks ago. And Caesar, uh, you know, I watched how he worked with him from the standpoint of, you know, babysitting, etc. And I used a lot of his techniques with Gooden and Strawberry, you know, so... I'm happy that you're here to, in essence, honor Yankee Miracles. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And we're hoping to uh, have Caesar back sometime to tell story upon story of uh, great stories of, of ball players coming up from as teenagers onward. Okay. Hopefully, sometime. Yeah, in but his stories are more X-rated than mine. So you got. <laughs> <laughs> What about, uh, if we can move on to the current yeah. roster, how yeah. about uh, the current captain, Derek Jeter? Good guy. Derek Jeter's a good guy. Uh, uh, a lot was thrown on him without it having to be that way. But, you know, because he, you know, he wants to play baseball. That's really all he wants to do. And, and, but, you know, he deals with it the best he can. Good person. He's a good person. And how about uh, Alex Rodriguez? He's the man in the mirror. He's the, the he's the guy in the Michael Jackson song. You know what I'm saying? 
if you want to make a world a better place that can let yourself and make the change. Okay? And uh, he, you know, he tries, he gets, he gets caught up with the world. You know what I'm saying? And then he has to keep looking in the mirror and remembering who he is because who he is is a good guy. He's a guy who's been in the street. He's, I've been able to take him out and play with the kids like Willie Mays did and stuff like that. I've been able to take him to schools and and, and all these variables. Un, ununiformed. You understand what I'm saying? Guys like to do stuff. Oh, I'm going with my foundation and all that crap. You know what I'm saying? No, man. The realities of life is Babe Ruth got up off his butt and went and saw the kids in the orphanages on his ride to the stadium just because he felt like going. You know, and it doesn't have to be because of this, oh, I got to call my agent because of that and all that BS, okay? The heck with the agents, because all they want is their 5%. I'm talking about Alex has been up and he's gone and he's played in the streets and I got the footage to prove it. And you know what? And I'm sick and tired of seeing all the bull crap that people take these shots at him. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, I don't care. He was there. He was there. And there are a lot of guys who are so-called good guys, nice guys, and don't do sh crap. Excuse me, guys. Do you think he he has such a bad image in the uh, in public? Because you know, in jealousy because of the money, basically. Jealousy, money leads to jealousy. You know, and, and that's the bottom line. That's why you know what I write my books and I give the money away. Okay. Because no one can say that I'm doing this or that for money. Steinbrenner, the Steinbrenner's pay me uh, to do my job, and I do my job. Okay, this is this is what I call found money. This ain't my money. God blessed me. Remember, the day he caught me, I was with three other people. Two are dead, or four others. Two are dead. The other two lived in Rikers Island for, for how many years? You understand? Why wasn't one of them caught? instead of me. When I saw my cousin dying of AIDS, and he was with me that day, and he said, I, he said to me, I always thought I was the lucky one. You were the lucky one. Do the right, you know, he, I forgot what, what it was that he said before he died. The last thing that he said to me, to you, just the essence of, just to keep going. So in essence, when I do these things, I don't want that money because I know that's a blessing from the Lord. You understand? God gave me that. I'm not Hemingway. All of a sudden, at the age of 50, I can write? You understand? So this is my fourth book. And all of them have basically been bestsellers. And uh, I, I want to do the right thing because, you know, life is short. Life is short. And I always say, Elvis and, Elvis and Gable are dead. And who are bigger than them? You know? So that shows you how fast life goes. Next question. Well, you leave me speechless. Our, uh, would anyone like to throw a question out from our, from our crowd in the clubhouse? Number one, we have a full crowd, and I'm proud of that. We have capacity filling, and I love it. I love it. Especially well, the bleacher section. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, the, you're worthy. The book is worthy. And uh, to everyone who's hearing this on the podcast, if you have not yet picked up Yankee Miracles, it, it's a must. And that's said as a Mets fan. Uh, 
Yes. Yeah, you, you've given us a lot of uh, feel-good stories that are quite moving, and I was wondering whether there were any uh, locker room problems uh, that you could tell us about that interfered with the chemistry of the successful team. Hey, let me just say this. That's a great question, because the 77 team, there was no team more controversial than that 77 team. Okay, when Reggie got over there and Reggie didn't like Billy, Billy didn't like Reggie. At the beginning, Thurman didn't like Thur uh, Reggie because Reggie said uh, he was the straw that stirs the drink and Thurman can only stir it bad. Remember all that? So, I mean, there was no scenario. Hey, that year, every single day, man, it was like, as I walk into that clubhouse, what am I going to see today? You understand? Because you saw all the things that you... That you read, what about the things that weren't said? What about the punches in the face that wasn't talked about? What about Goose and, and uh, Goose broke his Goose, Bruce broke his hand on Cliff Johnson's head? You understand what I'm saying? So these are the things. Hey, the old the old saying in that clubhouse was, if we can't get along, get it on. And you know who came up with that st uh, statement? Chris Chambliss. Probably the nicest guy on the team. <laughs> okay? A wonderful, soft-spoken human being whose father was a, a, like a minister, a chaplain. Okay? And he used to say the same thing. Oh, yeah, can't get along? Get it on. Okay? And everybody loved that because that's the way it was. And Billy naturally loved that. You know? Tell me... Just tell me who won the fight. Okay? <laughs> that's how Billy was. So, no, I mean, that, that's just the way that era was. But the guys, you know, I mean, like I told you, I told you how they were. You know, I, I remember we, we, we're going into the, whole, the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. Okay? The 74 season. And we're like a game back. And... One of our cats is a guy by the name of Rick Dempsey. And then we had another guy on the team by the name of uh, I think it was Sudeikis. Sudeikis. And they got into it on the bus. Okay? We, they got into it on the bus. And then the fight went from the bus into the lobby of the hotel, over the sofa. Bobby Mercer's in the middle trying to break the thing up. His loafer went flying up in the air, hits him on the head. He breaks his, uh, I think it was his thumb, and he couldn't play the ne that next day. And we lose by a game in 1974, which is my the year that hurt me the most. I wanted to win that year so bad because that team was, uh, they were called, we were playing at Shea Stadium, and they were called the band on the run, you know, after Paul McCartney's song, you know. And it, and it was awesome, you know, and I, and, and I love the fact that years later, I would talk to McCartney about that, about the band on the run and all that, and he loved that, you know. So, I hope I answered that question. You know? over, over those 40 years, is there one specific team that stands out for you? The 77 team. The, you know, and, 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 it, and it's the 70s Yankees. The 70s Yankees. I love that era of Yankees because that was... That was my childhood, and that was the years of me becoming a man. And so, in essence, you know, I, I, you know, when I, when I see those guys that uh, 
at fantasy camp. As you see, I hug them. Because, like they know, I'm a little, I'm a little part of all of them. Because they all gave me something to become a man. It wasn't just George, and it wasn't just Billy. Though, though, though they were my baseball fathers. If you ever see the movie A Bronx Tale, it's a sympathy for me, a sympathetic film for me. Because I'm C, and Sonny is George and Billy together. And I love the fact that when, you know, George saw that film because people would always say to him, man, that's you and Ray. That's you and Ray. Billy never got to see that film. He would have loved that film. I tell Chaz all the time, there's talk about the book going to Broadway. And uh, I've talked to Chaz Palminteri about playing Billy Martin. Because I think he would just like be great. He says, Oh, I'm too tall. That don't matter. <laughs> you know? But um, that's it. Next question. Yes, sir. Um, when, when you first came there, did, the, did one of the players introduce you to everybody? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, you know? Um, you know, the... the the guy that was so animated with me that first day was Ron Bloomberg, you know, the first DH. And he just came to me, and I'll never forget the first catch I actually had was with Ronnie Bloomberg. And I remember th I was so nervous that I short hopped the ball, it took a hop and hit him in the head. And I go, oh my God, I'm, now I'm done. <laughs> you know, and, and he just said, hey, hey. Cool, cool down, big guy. He calls everybody big guy. Big guy, take it easy. Like if I call Ron Bloomberg right now, how you doing, big guy? You know what I'm saying? And you know what? I'm going to call Ron Bloomberg. We're going to call him. <laughs> and you'll see what he said, right? Am I right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to call him. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him once. Uh, no, wonderful, wonderful guy. Yeah, very nice guy. But, you know, I'm going to put him on speaker. <laughs> this, this will be fun. <laughs> this is a first. Yeah, this is definitely a first. I, I, I love doing first. <laughs> Can you hear? I wish you had yeah. speaker. Oh? Boomy! What's happening, big guy? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're, you're on a show. I was talking about you, one of the first guys that I met my first day with the Yankees, and how you yeah. and how you took me around, and you and you automatically made me your little brother. Big Jay, you are my brother. You know, the only thing we have, we just a little bit mixed together. That's right. And Boomy, um, anyway, I, just the bottom line was I said that you, how you call everybody, big guy. You, you hey, let me tell you something. You're my favorite. My best big guy I think I've ever known and i ever met in Yankee Stadium and in the Bronx. Well, thank you, Boomy. And you know what? Uh, I'll pay you later for those statements. <laughs> hey, where am I going to see you again, big guy? Re real soon, okay? Uh, oh, you know what? I see you at the fantasy camp. Are you going to 
yeah, you want to go down there, aren't you? Yes, sir. In uh, January. In January. So I'll see. I'll see you then, and we'll wrap. Okay, is Manson coming? Manson is right here next to me. <laughs> he calls Iris Manson. <laughs> A couple of what? Jails. You know, like uh, Broadway, uh, you know, those, uh, the jails at, at the penitentiaries up there. Oh, my God, yeah. I will tell I, <laughs> Hey, look. Hey, how did Matt Polly do? What is Matt doing? Well, hey, Boomy, I'm on a radio, I'm on a show. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about all of that. Hey, go, go have a show. Talk to you later. Goodbye. All right, Boomy. Hey, January, tell everybody hello, big guy. Every, he, the great Ronnie Bloomberg says hello, folks. Hello. hello. <laughs> All right, Boomy. See you later, big guy. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was fantastic. The, uh, well, you've been crying for a half hour. Now you're going to make me cry because... As these guys were your dads, in effect, I, I, the time I met Ron was at the Baseball Hall of Fame. They honored the Jewish baseball players, right. and I went with my dad. Right. And it was one of the greatest weekends of my life. Uh, so you're blessed. Yeah, we'll yeah. never forget it. Okay, you're lucky. Uh, so I, does that, uh, we had some more questions, I think. Yes, dear. You survived many administration, shall we say. Right. You're talking about Billy Martin and Post. You were there with Joe Torrey for a while and obviously two polarly different personalities or they seem so. What did you think about them? Did they get along? And How did I think of? Billy Martin. Right. Joe Torrey. As you know, I, I got along with Billy smashingly. Uh, he trusted me explicitly. Uh, I mean, if Billy called me, I knew because he wanted to get a message over to Reggie. Like after he lost Fran Healy, that I was the guy that he went to all the time. And people didn't know, at that in that era, people didn't know exactly how much George Steinbrenner and Billy Martin was so relying on the work of the little Spanish bat boy. You understand what I'm saying? And you were the interim. I, I totally, yeah, totally. And the and the aspect. Can't you tell Billy? Can't you tell Reggie this? Can't you know? I mean, it was it was like that, and it was like all of a sudden, at such a young age, it was like I was a, this child psychologist, you know. So no, I I I, I love the fact that Billy relied on me the way he did, and and a moment that I will never forget was after Thurman died, like Billy Billy, a piece of Billy died that day because that was his son. He loved Thurman so much. And I will never forget there were all these reporters in Billy's office and and for three days I couldn't even get close to him because of the, the enormous scenario behind Thurman dying. And I needed to talk to him, you know? And like every day I would go in his office, go in, this and it was just, when he would drive in, he was, he just couldn't get close to him. And finally I walked into his office, all these guys were there, Dick Young, all these guys. And so he saw me 
And I saw, so I walked in, I, was, I went just, and I turned around, and, and, and right, 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 come, come in, come in, come in. And then he got up, like, hold it, guys, I, I got I to take care of something. And we walked and into his closet, because that was the only place that we could have privacy. And, uh, and in the closet, man, we just, like, cried like babies. We just hugged and cried like babies. And it was like, uh, anyway, that's Billy. Sort of a follow-up, if you don't want to do it, I understand. But probably one of the greatest games I ever watched, I watched on television, you see what I was, was the game that they played yeah. the afternoon after Thurman's the Thurman's funeral. The Bobby Mercer. Yeah, Bobby Mercer had run at the home run right. and won the game. Right. Um, what was that like, and... Did the angel send the grapefruit to Bobby Mercer so he would get it? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, he, no, no. Okay, because I know the game well enough, okay? And especially I had already played, I had already played pro ball myself, and I'm standing behind, I'm standing right there. You know what I'm saying? I'm right there. I was in, in the corner of the dugout watching at the pitching scenario. And like Bobby was going up to the plate, and he kept looking back to see if Billy was what he uh, was gonna pinch hit him, you know, because yeah, he had already done that with Bobby a few times during the season. So he kept looking back, and Billy goes, "What the hell is he looking at me for? Go, go, go get him! Go get him! Come on, go get him!" You know what I'm saying? Billy just felt it. Everybody felt it, you know, and I. We all felt that he was going to come through in that spot, and it was a legitimate pitch. It was a legitimate pitch. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Which is why he hit it that way, okay. as opposed to pulling the ball with the way he did with, it, the, with the home run. You know what I'm saying? He, he was just all he wanted to do was cheat it a little bit. He had to cheat it in order to hit it, which is what he did. And we got the line drive to left field. Game is over, and and it was and, and to say. That it was a happy moment was an understatement, but it was a very happy moment. We were, we were just happy. It was, a, I mean, like winning a World Series game. We were just happy, you know. And uh, and it was almost like, like I, Reggie. I looked at Reggie, and he was like real quiet and solemn. And I and I was just there, and I and I and I got to know him well enough that at that moment I knew. That he was trying to handle the aspect of going in peace with Thurman because he knew that with that game, that was really the end of the whole Munson era. Because that game was played for Thurman Munson, you know? Yes, sir? Um, how did it feel to. Another great question. Um, the, that, that day in 73. Just to, just to walk on there. You know, I'm, like I told you that, I'm going to take you guys so that you guys can feel what it's like to walk on that field. Because I want you to feel that. And I knew right then and there that the spirit of Ruth and Garrick were right there. And I knew it because later on I would end up doing my children's books. And if you read my children's books, they're always with the spirits of Ruth and Garrick and DiMaggio and all that kind of stuff. And so in my mind, like later on, I would sleep at Yankee Stadium. 
I would sleep at the stadium. A lot of times when I didn't want to go home for whatever the reason, the boss would always say to me to stay at the park. Sometimes I slept in the dugouts, you know. Uh, I remember one time sleeping out in center field, just sleeping. Just went to sleep, and then I wake around around six o'clock in the morning, go back into the clubhouse, and start the day. But uh, I would play all these imaginary games, and I would have all the sound effects and everything, and run the bases, and you know, go and make the great play off the center field wall, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I would have the other bad boys stay and. And I would like shag, you know, you know, we would, I would hit them fungos and stuff like that. And again, playing the imaginary games, you know. Yes, sir. Um, I, sometimes I think to myself reading this book, if Reggie was a straw, it seems like you were the glue that kept the team together, like you were the heart of it. Um, and, I, you know, Derek Jeter is to me what Mickey Mantle was to you. Right. Sometimes I kind of, <clears throat> there was no one like that during nighttime, like yourself and Mr. Ring and Grom who could have kept that clubhouse together. Like, I think of the turmoil between A-Rod and Derek. If there would have been somebody like that who could maybe have made them, not that they had too many differences or they didn't talk, but seem, if they could have made things more amicable, do you think something that's this current Yankee team is missing something like that? Like a real big, like a heart, somebody to make things very humane in there? Well, good question, because Bob Costas did, uh, he did the interview with Reggie Jackson. And Bob Costas asked Reggie, did you feel that you had peace when Thurman died with Thurman? And he said to me, I, I, I had peace with Thurman. We were really good friends. And a big part of that was because uh, a guy who is, who is still there now, Raina Grown, put us together. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? And even though me and Reggie had never talked about it throughout the years, the fact that he said that gave me the chills because it was something that had been in his mind for a long time. You know, and Reggie's not the type of guy that's going to go up to you and say, hey, thanks for doing that, or, you, you know, but he'll say it in, in that stage. You know, today, it, it, it's, it's a different world today. And remember something. I love the Yankees. I mean, next to my, you know, next to my children, I loved the Yankees during that time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I never knew anything more that I could love like the Yankees. Nothing. Not a girl. I get that. You, you understand? Yeah. Not anything. The only, the only thing that I ever felt that powerful, that powerful, was when my first son was born. You know, because that was me. That's me. And he was born because of a product of baseball. Because I met his mother in the stadium. Do you understand? I'm not caught that day there isn't that kid. Or any of them. Anything that's happened, I wouldn't be sitting here. She wouldn't be my wife. He wouldn't be my best friend. He wouldn't be my brother. You understand what I'm saying? That it's just the product of the game of baseball. To watch the pride of the Yankees for the first time. And, and feel the God of Lou Gehrig. 
What's bigger than that? What? Have you ever seen the pride of the Yankees? Not yet, no. Oh my God. I'm so happy. I, I can only say that I'm I'm excited for you. What film, did, what, what film did I give you yesterday? What film did I give you yesterday? Give us that classic baseball film. What? The Pride of the Yankees. I mean, you guys have seen The Pride of the Yankees. Okay? When you watch The Pride of the Yankees for the first time, if that doesn't exude you to love baseball, then you know what? You're not, then you, you go to Rikers Island. <laughs> Next question. Would you comment on Alex Rodriguez getting benched for the playoff and that had an impact on the club? Uh, you know what? We weren't going to win anyway. That's the way, that's my feeling. So it didn't matter because he's not Reggie Jackson. He may have 600 home runs, but there was nobody, with the exception of the babe, who in October could do what that man did. Nobody. Hey, Billy did that to him. Billy did that to Reggie. And you remember that game. He came back and got that big pinch hit. And then and then the fireworks really began and he really became Mr. October. Okay? So that's the difference. You know? That's the difference. And so that that's why I don't even compare because, you know... Hey, Reggie may not have 600 home runs, but man, he was an entertainer. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Alex Rodriguez because uh, of things that you read, but I felt bad for him that they, they benched him for the playoffs uh, when other ball players were playing just as bad as he was. Um, and again, I just thought, hey, you know, hey. I'm watching television, and on, on that, it's, it's somebody who's going to pick a bat, and Alex is on the bench. I'm thinking, whoa, what's going on? Again, it happened to Reggie, right? And it, they, they did it to Reggie, but he came back and did what he had to do. He didn't let, you know, Alex, he just let it defeat him. Okay? You gotta be a man. You 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 wanna you wanna go to that bet you wanna go to Chase Manhattan and cash that check? You, you better be a man. That's all I got to say. Next question. Yes, sir. Did you meet did you meet Suzuki yet? No, good guy. Nice player. You know, he ain't he ain't a Yankee. <laughs> okay? But he's a nice player. Next question. This is uh, this will be our last official question during the podcast because of a time factor. After that, we can continue. But I want to ask you what happened with Thurman's own Cadillac after you drove it back. It went uh, well. You know what? There was a guy named Dick Gidron, and every year he would give Thurman a, a new Cadillac to drive. So that was that was a loaner car that he would get for the season. You know what I'm saying? So that's probably why he always loaned me the car, the son of a gun. <laughs> the, uh, so we're going to continue with the question. Just because of the time, we're going to have to end the podcast. So once again, the book is Yankee Miracles, Life with the Boss and the Bronx Bombers by Ray Negron. If, you ha- if you're listening to this and you have not picked this up yet, obviously this is a must. You can just tell from this discussion. And I'm going to let the, the final word belong to Bob Costas, 
because I think what he wrote was so beautiful and it's dead on. Uh, Much of sports can leave us skeptical, if not cynical. But I defy anyone to read Ray Negron's remarkable story and not come away believing that there still can be genuine heart, soul, and even redemption in the games we watch and play. And that's Yankee Miracles by Ray Negron. Thank Thank you. you so much, Ray. Appreciate it.